Hello, hello. Welcome to At Home with the Intuitive Cook, the podcast giving a voice to everyday home cooks like you and me. Join me around the kitchen table as we chat about finding cooking ease and inspiration beyond rules and recipes and the noise of celebrity chef culture. It's not rocket science, it's just dinner. I'm Katerina Pavlakis, the intuitive cook, and very much at home with me today is Amy McGraham. Amy describes herself as a storyteller, island runner, and curator of family ghosts and recipes. She grew up on an island in Maine on the east coast of the US into a family line of women writers. Today, she's joining us from the very kitchen where her mom used to cook and write from, and where she often finds the inspiration for her own writing today. Our conversation takes in the joys of fresh herbs and small communities, the challenges of baking, and how cooking can make you feel at home. Hello, Amy. I'm so glad we can have a chat about cooking in the kitchen you grew up, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, I am here in this tiny little galley. I don't know if I should show you around a little bit, but it's pretty darn small. Out back here, I have an, actually, I have an herb garden I can keep an eye on and crabapple orchard. And I don't think it's much bigger than a ship's galley. So a lot of magic happened here, though, over the years. It's amazing what we can do in small spaces. Tell me more about the magic in that kitchen. Right. So this house, um, we moved into my father, mother, and I. I'm an only child. 50 years ago. 51 years ago, actually. It's an old house, a farmhouse on an island in Maine. I was eight when we moved in here. And it's really kind of surreal to be back to be back here, you know, because as I grew up, I moved far away and uh, really didn't visit very much. And so while I was here in my childhood, a lot of cooking went on because my mom was a food writer and a budding cook and baker. And She's kind of got herself well known in the in the area outside of the island and in the region. She wrote a cooking column in the newspaper and then later turned that into a newsletter all about food and life on a small island. So she was always testing food. <laughs> we were never we never had a shortage of things to to try. They weren't always wonderful, but they were memorable for certain. And she would sometimes have to cook the same thing like three, four times to get it right. She was a little more choreographed than I think you and now I am. She she definitely approached it casually, her cooking, but she also had this need to make things just right. So she was definitely into recipes, whereas I know you've said in, in many of the things I follow on you, you know, you can't for the life of you follow a recipe. And I don't think you have to. I think you can still make magic either way. So I think it, it was more for her all about having fun, but you know, it was also a, a business for her and a career. Yeah. So there was lots of lots of really good food. She was much more um, European in her cooking, I think, from her French roots to her mother-in-law's Austrian background. There was a lot of different food that I had as a kid than than most of my friends. You know, they were having shake and bake or spaghetti and we were having cassoulet or some strange eggplant dish. Anyway, here's where it all started. That's where it all started. And and do you remember 
learning to cook or did it just kind of went by osmosis? I do. Yes. I mean, I think my first memories of mom baking anyway, were not in this kitchen. She used to make for my birthday an angel food cake every year and all those egg whites. Oh my gosh. But I just remember her whipping that up. And then when we moved here, I learned shortly after we moved here, so I must have been eight or nine, how to make a peach pie. And so in this tiny little kitchen, we were elbow to elbow, <laughs> rolling out the dough, making a lattice crust. I have a really strong memory of that and how it felt like we accomplished something when we finished that pie. And I do remember, like, I would always help her pick vegetables out of the garden. We had a huge garden in the back that overlooks the cove, the ocean. There used to be a scarecrow there and we had zucchini and, you know, basically all your stuff, tomatoes, corn, everything when the deer didn't get it. <laughs> and so we had a lot of fresh vegetables in the summer. And at some point I am going to revive that garden. <laughs> My closest that I've done is a little herb garden this summer and I'm not a green thumb. So I needed help with that. But um, a lot of the stuff my mom had planted from years back is still there. Chives, mint, you can't kill mint. I've learned that. So that's safe for me. Sounds amazing. You, you mentioned feeling accomplished when you finish cooking something. So is is that something you you have carried through? Is that something that is that comes with, you know, the joy of, of making a meal for yourself? Yeah, I think a lot of it is like, I do feel accomplished if I've made something and it comes out good, or even if it comes out like crap, which has happened a lot lately, because I've been more immersed in cooking than I, I can ever remember in any time of my life. But I think it's more like the energy, it's, it's a creative venue for me, right? So I love to write. And when I cook, I feel that same creative flow. And then like, you know, when I get in the flow of writing, it's the same as when I'm cooking. And when I've finished something, be it words on a page or a dish that comes out of the oven, it just does feel like an accomplishment, but it feels like, I don't know, like a good, the end of a good run or something, you know, you're just like, oh, that was amazing. You know, that feeling, right? I don't know. I just celebrate little things like, did that cake come out right? Oh my gosh, it did, or it didn't. <laughs> but try not to beat myself up over over the, the fails. <laughs> Do you find the fails are really huge? Do we tend to make them huge in our mind? I mean, I find it's really difficult to make something that's not edible. I know. And, you know, I think the fails for me are more when it comes to baking. So I think I take the same approach to you when I'm cooking something on the stove, sauteing vegetables, using herbs, fresh spices, whatever. It's much more flexible that way, but I've been baking a lot more and I don't know why that is. It's just like, I want this, I want to learn something new. And so let me bake something I've never baked before. And it doesn't always come out right because you do have to, in my experience anyway, you do kind of have to follow a recipe pretty much to the T with baking. You can't really improvise too much, although I'm learning how to do that. But I'm not surprised if it doesn't come out 100% perfect. I always caveat it. Like I've been testing them out on my husband, a lot of the baked dishes, and we love sweets. So um, that's good and bad. But I make it anyway, and I tell him he doesn't have to eat it, but that, you know, falls on deaf ears. But I always caveat it with, this may or may not taste good. I have no idea. I have no background. I'm not a baker by, you know, that wasn't my strength, um, but I really want to hone those skills. And so 
it could fail and I'm not like that worried about it. You know, either I'll try it again or just move on to something else. You do have the background of, you know, growing up in that kitchen with your mum doing all that cooking and baking. So you have probably more more of a background than than a lot of people. That's true. And, you know, I don't think I paid a lot of attention to, you know, exactly how she cooked. I did in my later years when I would come back and visit. I had this big sales job for a career for 25 years in the corporate world. And I was always traveling around on business. And um, every once in a while, I'd pop by here in Maine and visit her. And I'd be watching what she did, you know, a little bit more than when I was a kid. And now when I look through a lot of her old stories that she put in her newsletter or even in her column in the newspaper. It's like helping me recreate history. And I had no idea. She writes a lot about the two of us and how I had these finicky tastes as a kid, or I would turn my nose up at certain things like carrot peanut loaf. No, who wouldn't? I don't know. That was really not a good dish that she made, but I guess I was more involved than I remember. My memory isn't all, there's a lot of haze in it from the earlier years. And so it's kind of neat to recreate that through her words. But yeah, I clearly don't remember a lot of it. But I did, like you said, it was osmosis maybe that I absorbed a lot of the technique and learning and kind of intuitive way to cook, right? It it just kind of is there um, without trying. Do you think also that trying all these different foods from such an early age has kind of influence your taste today? Like, do you find you have a more eclectic or varied sort of taste than, I don't know, than other people around you? I think so, definitely. And, you know, when I look at the old recipes that she included in her column, which was her first entree into to food writing and cooking, which happened right after my parents' divorce, she kind of needed to make some money she was stuck in this house, not stuck, but she was living in this house with me. It was just the two of us and a dog and a cat. And, and, you know, she had these really weird recipes. And now that I look back on it thinking she's putting herself out there with, with some very eclectic food. Like I said, it's not your typical casseroles or spaghetti or whatever chocolate cake. You know, she had like a lentil soup recipe or some whole wheat flour type of baked good that I don't think people were doing much in the 70s with, especially here. This is a, you know, a fisherman community, really. And, you know, we thrive on clam chowder and steamed lobsters and clams and basic food like that. And she's publishing this stuff that was, I would say, a little eclectic for the taste buds in this area. But, you know, people loved it. Right. And I don't know if they tried it all or they just liked reading about it, but I think it was kind of neat the way that she, she always said cooking should be fun. Right. And she had fun with it, even if it was weird. And so I look at some of these recipes and when I make them, you know, maybe they don't taste as good as I remember, but, and maybe it's just because I can't quite recreate that magic um, that she, she had that magic touch, but you know, there's some definitely odd things in there. <laughs> Do you like them? Or do you still find them odd, even though you maybe grew up with them? Yeah, I find them odder now, I think. I think then I didn't really question it because it was like what was on the table, you know. And some of it wasn't great when I was a kid. I do remember. I keep going back to the carrot peanut loaf, which she even agreed was not a good choice. But I think I question it more now. Maybe I'm more, I, I wouldn't say I'm a mainstream cook, 
but I'm willing to try a lot of different things. And my taste buds have changed. You know, stuff I really didn't like as a kid, I do now. So, such as Brussels sprouts, or still trying to get excited about watermelon. I don't like the texture of it very much. So, I tried this thing. I, I pureed up a bunch of watermelon and strawberries, these fresh strawberries, because it's the end of the strawberry season here in Maine. I'm like, what can I do with these? They're so ripe. I got to do something. Threw a bunch of fresh mint. And it came out like a slushy almost, and it was a beautiful shade of fuchsia. I loved it. And I thought, well, I'll freeze them in an ice cube tray. And, and like, just, you know, when it's, it's so hot and humid here right now, kind of just like take a little bite off one once in a while. And, and so watermelon, I can like sneak up on, I guess. My mom always said that I'm sneaking up on that, sneaking back up on that taste and really enjoying it. I like the taste, not the texture. So pureeing it was good but yeah I mean I'm willing to try weird things I don't know if you'd call that weird that's probably normal I wouldn't have thought about putting mint in that until I just happened to have it in my garden here so yay you know what can I do with mint what can I do with all these strawberries hmm. yeah you came up with an idea so what what else what else are you cooking this week I don't know if you, if you are like me, I mean, I'm not all choreographed and scripted and everything, but I have a, like, for me, it gets me excited. I'm testing a lot of things out just for the heck of it. There's no real reason. I mean, I might include them in a future newsletter, but I have a list that I set every week. It's usually three items, what I'm going to cook. And sometimes, you know, I, I improvise with that too. Maybe something else comes up, but so for example, I put it on a whiteboard, <laughs> I made a pancake, a Finnish pancake yesterday, which was really good. It was out of one of my mom's old newsletters with strawberries on top. The pancake was not your typical pancake. It was how she described it as in her head note to that was it's like a failed popover with a kind of omelette feel. And it was the most basic batter ever. You could have wung it, and I almost wanted to throw in some cardamom because I'm kind of fascinated by that spice. But but the dish itself doesn't really scream Scandinavia or Finland to me. I'm not sure what does, but it was pretty basic. But then I made this, I took a bunch of, of strawberries, put them in a saucepan with, with sugar and vanilla, and made like a sauce of them, pureed half of it, and then brought it back into the pot. So it was like a strawberry syrup, and that was really good. So I made that. Also, I'm going to be making a peach cornbread. So fresh peaches, which I have a ton of. Hello. I wish I had picked them, but they're not. They're from the market. I'm going to make that tonight for a potluck. A bunch of peaches cooked in a cast iron skillet with a top with cornbread. So I'm going to try that and honey. What else am I making? I made a chickpea salad yesterday too. And that was kind of like following your lead where it says like, let the ingredients in your fridge lead you. You know, I had a can of chickpeas. I had cucumber pickling cukes from a farm stand, a tomato, some blue cheese, some quinoa, and just kind of mushed it all, mixed it all up and put a vinaigrette on there and boom. So I did that. What else do I have? I have two other dishes that I'm taking to kind of like a, a retreat up in the mountains this weekend that I'm going to butterscotch grams and lemon blueberry poke cake. And both of those <laughs> I do need a recipe for. I can't wing that. And we're staying, like 10 of us are staying in a condo and it's like kind of potluck, bring whatever you want. So I'm like, I'll bring the baked goods, the sweets, and everyone loves me. 
So yes, that's the word you're using. You're winging it. You you say that quite a lot. So, what what is going on in your head? You think when you're winging it, how you how you decide what to throw in or not? I don't know. Like the two examples I gave, having fresh herbs at the ready is like okay. I don't know if I can come up with it off the top of my head. What will I do with this sage that's growing here or the thyme that's out there? I might resort to Googling it and saying like, seeing what comes up and then kind of altering that to what I have available to use, right? Some of it is intuitive. So if I only could grow basil here, I'd have basil and tomato and and a little olive oil and balsamic. That's kind of like a basic, right? But I don't, I guess I would just have to say whatever's there, you know, like I have in the freezer, what do I have? I have a bunch of frozen bananas for smoothies and some frozen blueberries because it's not yet blueberry season here. What can I do with that? I might make a smoothie actually. That would be, that would be easy, you know, with both berry and banana. I also have coffee in there, but I don't know what to do with that. Actually, what did I do? I made, (laughs) last week I made a recipe for hermits. I don't know if you're familiar with that, if that has a European translation or not. It's like molasses, raisin, walnuts, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, and they're kind of like chewy squares that you make and they're delicious. And it called for coffee of all things, like a tablespoon of coffee. I really could taste that. It wasn't overpowering, but it was kind of neat. So I don't know. I don't think I would have thought of that if I hadn't had the recipe, though. So that's not really intuitive. (laughs) Well, but isn't that how we kind of build up this, you know, flavor library in our heads now that you experienced once what the coffee might do in the context of a sweet treat? you might, you know, come up with that idea because obviously we all get our ideas from somewhere, usually a recipe. But then if you build that up in the library in your head, you can maybe next time you make, I don't know, a a granola bar and you might think, oh, maybe that might fit here. I don't know. But you need that, you need that reference in your head first. Exactly. I I think, you know, a recipe is a good foundation, but from it, you build the knowledge and things that you never would have come up with, you do file away. And then there, there it is like, oh, I can do that because I tried this. And it's kind of like what I was talking about with cardamom, that spice, which is so unique and oddly pungent. And I don't know what, you know, why I'm so fascinated by it, but I've used it in an egg dish. I've used it in sweets because it was called for in the recipe. But now I know that and it's like, oh, I could throw that in this finished pancake or I could try cardamom in some other odd thing that I would never, you know, I never would have thought to put it in eggs, but it was good. So yeah, I think you're right. We build this knowledge and then suddenly that's where the intuition comes from. So maybe that's why I'm doing all this baking and cooking and learning to keep building that reference library. I think this is why I say I can't follow a recipe, but nevertheless, I love recipes. I got lots of recipe books and I kind of, I read them in bed, like, you know, like a novel, because this is where all these ideas come from. And I, you know, see this and that, I think, oh, that's a good combination. And I might not necessarily make that recipe, but I think, oh, combining aubergines with pesto is a great idea, for example. 
totally get that recipe thing and cookbooks. Cookbooks, especially like vintage cookbooks, and this whole house is a museum and filled with vintage whatever, but there's a ton of cookbooks here and I'm kind of going through them and they're fascinating to me because they tell stories, you know, not necessarily here's a story that introduces the recipe, but the whole the whole recipe is a story. And same with a family recipe. You know, I have stacks of recipes I'm planning to try out. And I have a whole journal, a recipe journal that I started telling stories about it. And where it will go, I don't know, because I don't have any kids and I'm an only child. So it's probably going to live in this house for whoever gets it. But, But I think that's what's so neat about, you know, filing that information away, about reading about it, living it. Rebecca Mae Johnson just came out with small fires in the kitchen and I'm fascinated. I've read a lot of excerpts and interviews with her and stuff. And I'm fascinated how she's, you know, treating some of the recipes in there. And I think she's pretty intuitive in how she cooks too. And that's my, my next book to get this week. And I'm writing a whole story on recipes as well and how they tell stories and how you can pinpoint if you're looking at old recipes that you've made or that are handed down in the family, it's like, You can pinpoint events in your life or past lives through a recipe or even a cookbook. And clearly with my mom's stuff, I mean, that's, that's a given, but not everybody has 32 years worth of cooking newsletters to read. So (laughs) I think we all have however many years we've been on this earth of memories, if not of cooking, we certainly have memories of eating. And as you said, you know, you can pinpoint the recipes or the dishes to certain events in your life and and they kind of become spending my summers. Well, I'm not spending my summers on the Greek island anymore, but I certainly spent a week or two every summer with my parents on the island. And there is, you know, this one dish, the stuffed tomatoes, which is the sort of classic, simple Greek summer dish that to me is just part of of the feeling of summer. It's just that taste in the same way as the wild thyme that is growing, you know, on the hill behind the house on the island. And when you walk through and you brush with your legs against the thyme and it's coming up in the air, that smell. And, And you can then, you know, bottle that smell and take it with you in a little jar. And, you know, the smell immediately conjures up the whole environment. It's quite quite amazing. Right. And I think the sense of smell is the the strongest of all five. I, I'm pretty sure that's what they say anyway. And for me it's true. It's like it is so evocative of a moment in your life and it takes you right back. It could have been when you were four. Just the scent of something, baking or cooking or a field of lavender or whatever. You know, like I smell I smell lavender aromatherapy oil. I've got lavender planted out here, which is really exciting. I smell that now. I remember my grandmother when I was four, because she always smelled like it was either lavender or violets. There's just that. It, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Those herb plants that I know from from the UK that you can get in pots and, and the ones that grow wild on, on the hills in this sort of really arid climate of a Greek island, they're like a completely different thing. I mean, they even look different. Wild oregano, wild sage, wild thyme. It's all so kind of hardened by the sun that the leaves are tiny, but then the aroma and the taste is so much more concentrated as well. It's kind of really kind of very punchy. 
I'm going to have to like start noticing that more. I don't know where I'm going to find wild things growing, wild herbs growing here, but I'm sure they're around. In Arizona, where I spend some of my time, we have rosemary bushes and they, it smells gorgeous, right? I mean, they just grow up everywhere. So what's your favorite thing to, to cook or to eat of all the many things and flavors we discussed? Do you have a favorite? I think it has, it's, it's got to be something with, well, let's just put sweets aside because I could just list that. I think something like fresh sautéed vegetables or a really good salad, a creative salad. It's got to be something with vegetables because for the most part, I'm a pescatarian. So I'll eat seafood because I'm right in the mecca of seafood. But vegetarian cooking for me is pretty fun. But just more so just having fresh vegetables. And I'm grateful that I have access to that. Yeah, I can't think of, I'm trying to think of a specific dish. I'll come back to that. Okay, good. Yeah, vegetables. I, I don't know how it is in the US, whether there is some kind of tradition of cooking vegetables, but in the UK, I can really see the difference between the Greek culinary traditions where cooking vegetables is like a, an art of its own and they very often are, you know, dishes of their own. And in the UK, it's more like, a side dish that more often than not is just steamed or boiled and kind of rather, you know, loveless. And accordingly, it doesn't taste that great. So people, they eat vegetables because, you know, they think they should. But in Greece, vegetables and vegetarian dishes are like a completely different world because I think they are considered something in their own right. Exactly. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know the accessibility to like farm fresh vegetables in the UK versus Greece. But I would imagine you probably have more in Greece, which is really similar to my situation here in Maine versus Arizona. Maybe it's just in my head, but you know, the soil is different and things just taste differently, you know? And then when you're getting vegetables in the grocery store, which, you know, you have to do, or I do anyway, at times you can't have them fresh 100% of the time. I mean, fresh meaning like right from the earth. That's a different taste too. And who knows where they come from or fruits even, you know, it used to be way back in the day, probably my mom's day when she wrote this, you know, you didn't have all these available fruits all the time, strawberries in the market from Chile or California, depending on the season or, you know, any of that, it was like a lot more, you just kind of got what you could get during the winter time. Now it's kind of like available 24 seven, but is it good is my question. <laughs> is it worth it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, I, I run a, a small food shop here in our little Welsh town. And at some point we started, you know, selling organic vegetables and the main thing about this is that our supply line is a lot shorter because there is a wholesaler, you know, in Manchester, two hours away, and they work directly with the farms. So really, there is only one other step between the farm and, and it coming to our shop. And a lot of people who buy vegetables from our shop, they don't come because it's organic. Once they come and taste it, they come back because of the taste. They couldn't care less about organic or not, but because it does taste different, they keep coming back. I would. I'd, I'll be there. <laughs> 
I think you're also kind of developing a community. So the person that's coming for the one tomato that comes back because it was so good is also probably coming back for the experience because, you know, you don't really want to be in a supermarket chain all the time, right? I mean, they're a necessary evil, but that sense of community spirit, I think, is something that people are craving too, rather than, you know, or ordering stuff online. That's just really impersonal. Yes, it's Again, another necessity at times, but yeah, I'm all about the direct in-person approach. I think that's what we're trying to do. I mean, we decided early on, we don't do anything online. I mean, a lot of shops also now have, you know, some sort of online part, but we just thought, no, we're not going to do online anything because we just can't compete. What we can compete with is that we are this amazing personal, personable shopping experience where you can come in and, and, and tell me your recipe and I'll, I'll find you ingredient alternatives. And in a way, this is how the intuitive cook sort of came about because I had so many conversations in the shop with people about ingredients and recipes and cooking and you know, getting stuck because you may not have that ingredient and we might not have every ingredient under the sun, but there is always an alternative. And, and this is how I kind of thought, oh, maybe my way of thinking about flavors and ingredients and recipes is something worth, worth sharing. That's how it came about really because of the shop and the conversations I have with people in there. That's cool. You've given me an idea. I'm going to start a shop here. I'm just kidding. Maybe in the future. You never know. But it reminded me of when my mom was first starting out. And again, it, this is a small community. The island's 600 people. The whole region's, I don't know, maybe 5,000 people, if that. And we're connected by a drawbridge. So I don't need a ferry ride to get to the mainland, per se. But you're still kind of isolated. You know, everyone talks to one another at the general store down the street. It's a mile. In town, where the one grocery store is and the one stoplight, that's where my mom would strike up conversations with people as she was starting to to sort of get involved in more cooking and developing this column for the newspaper. She'd be like, hey, you know, and she loves to talk. She would just like hail people in the produce aisle and, hey, what do you think of this? Or do you have a recipe for that? Or have you ever tried baking that? Or you know, and so it was like this whole sense of community because it's a small place. And I think that's essential too. Like when I compare this to Phoenix, where I'm in the wintertime, I split my time between the island and desert, which is really interesting. It's a big city and you don't always see the same people. And I certainly don't go in the grocery store and sometimes I'll see someone I know, but I'm not like talking recipes with them. You know, they're very different relationships that you can cultivate in different locales, I guess. So I like it here because, you know, people will be sure to share a recipe with you. Here you see people because there's no way around seeing them. They're here. They're everywhere. Same neighbors forever, you know, and we all know what probably what we ate last night for dinner. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I have a similar experience, you know, having lived in Athens and in Berlin and in London for many years and then moving here to this tiny community. Our town is maybe 3,000 people, so it's not as small as yours, but it's still a very tiny, tiny town. And I had no lived experience of a small community, and I wasn't even sure I would like it. But now that I'm here, I just love it because of what, what exactly you were just talking about. Whether you like it or not, these are the people that are around, and there isn't that many. So you just connect with people in a 
completely different way. I mean, in London, I didn't want to know my neighbors. Here, I can't help knowing my neighbors. <laughs> and actually, it's lovely. And you probably actually can borrow a cup of sugar at any given moment. But when I got out of here in my early 20s out of Maine, it was like, I want to be in the big city. I went to California. I mean, I made the whole coastal switch. I've had these big city experiences. And then when I traveled, it was all over the U.S. to all these big cities for business. And at the time, I liked that, you know, when I was younger, I guess. And now it's like, I'm getting older, and it's kind of a nicer way to, to sort of settle down and engage with a smaller community. I, I guess it just feels more comfortable. It's almost like I'm full circle from my childhood. It, it's it's just different. And then with the big cities, it was always, you know, you're always eating out on an expense account. I'm eating at restaurants all the time. I'm not cooking. I'm not feeling the food or feeling the freshness of a berry patch or tomato plant. And now I'm really grateful that I, ha I can do both. But there's no substitute, in my opinion, for a smaller community. I didn't realize I'd ever want this again. And it's kind of just happened. And it's nice. And now, my kitchen friends, it's time for a quick break to see what I've been cooking up for you. If you ever feel trapped by recipes or wish you could get more creative in your kitchen, I made a free mini course. It's called Ditch the Recipes and it's a short series of five emails that will help you get started on your intuitive cooking journey. Sign up on the website at theintuitivecook.co.uk slash free or find the link in the show notes. And now, let's get back to our conversation. So how, how does cooking make you feel? Oh, I guess I'm not going to go back to the word accomplished. <laughs> I feel like it, it's almost like a rebirth. Every time I, I feel really at home in the kitchen, which is weird, because for so many decades, I really didn't cook, you know, from the teenage years of vegetarian cooking, which wasn't a lot, to an early marriage that ended pretty quickly um, that was all casseroles and coffee cakes. Then for 30 years, I didn't cook because I was out jet sitting around at different restaurants on an expense account. Now I'm back into it and it just feels like home. I don't know. And it doesn't matter. At first, I came back here 10 years ago to take care of my mom. And we started cooking together while she still could. And so we did it together and it was almost like the reverse parenthood. And then, you know, I got back into writing or I got into writing, which is what I always wanted to do from the time I was five and wrote my first like 10 word story. You know, now I'm doing that. And it was, it's that feeling of like, this is home and I don't have to be in a place. It took me a while to realize this in the last 10 years. I don't have to be here in Maine to be able to write. I don't have to be here in Maine to be able to cook. I can do that in both of my houses because home is kind of right here. It's a state of mind for me. It's a state of being not necessarily tied to a place. So when I cook, I feel like home, like maybe it was just always in my blood to begin with. And I didn't know it. It makes me happy. I'm content. It's very cathartic to me to cook. The baking is like, oh, this is the real challenge. And I love, you know, I have this thing about challenging myself. I run marathons and ultra marathons. Okay, now I'm going to make a layer cake. I'd never made a layer cake in my life. And I did that for my birthday last month. And that might have been what I would consider an epic fail. The cake looked great. It took like five hours to 
defrost it and figure it all out, but it didn't taste great. <laughs> I don't know if it's an epic fail. It was a fail. It was in my do not cook list. <laughs> what not to make. I actually do have a notebook that's what not to make. So, Oh, tell me more about that. <laughs> like I said, I have this family recipe journal I decided I was going to start. And those are the recipes I would make again, or maybe that were really good and that I really liked. So I have a little, it's kind of like a scrapbook. And I decided, you know, when I got back into cooking this beginning of this year, I would chronicle everything that I cooked somehow. Maybe I write about it in my journal. Maybe I write about it in the family recipe journal. And then, you know, when things weren't great, when I made something that didn't taste wonderful or I would never make again, or it was a total fail, I don't spend a lot of time on it. I'll maybe write a couple of sentences, but I decided to start like a cheesy little notebook that's that was what I made that I would not make again. So I called it What Not to Cook. And yeah, that's that's actually been kind of fun. <laughs> Tell me a couple of things in it. Okay, so uh, actually that cake made it in there because it was a blackberry jam cake, which sounds really yummy, but it was very bland. So that made it in there. Then there was this thing flying around. I guess it was flying around TikTok and it was the cottage cheese ice cream. I don't know if you've seen that. It's not really good at all, but everyone was raving about it. So of course I had to try it. It was like the solid brick. Like I needed a chainsaw to cut it. And I kept diligently trying to eat it and like it and it wasn't good. So that made the list. And then from like a really old issue of either Bon Appetit or Gourmet, I think it was Bon Appetit, that I found at a vintage store because that gives me comfort too, old magazines, old cooking magazines. There was this recipe for shrimp, avocado, and cucumber salad, which looked and sounded really good. There was fresh dill on it. It, it just tasted like nothing. So that made the list too. It's interesting that, you know, when you talked about the cake and now the salad, you said, well, it was just bland. Isn't yeah. that often what happens with with recipes that somehow they are bland? I mean, that is what happens more often than not. When, when a recipe doesn't work, it's because it is bland, isn't it? So true. And when I took your class earlier this year, and you're te teaching pretty basic things, you know, the, the salt, oil, fat, whatever. But the four basic, what do you call them? I think I call them the elements of flavor. Right. And it was like, wow, that is so basic, but so true. I think, you know, knowing the, the basics of flavor, as, as I learned from some of your approach, yeah, I, I mean, that's flavor versus the bland. And the bland, for me, is more, maybe it's more of a sweet thing, right? It's just, there's, there's a difference in sweet food versus savory. And I think you get more potent flavors in savory cooking, right? But I guess both the savory and the sweet, I would think that blandness somehow has something to do with one dimensional. When the flavor isn't complex enough, it just has one dimension. And with the sweet, it might be that, you know, it's just sweet and there is no, no zestiness or no something else to, you know, lift that sweetness. And, and obviously with savory dishes, It, it's probably quite similar that you don't want something that is just plain salty or plain sour. If you have another dimension in there, then that kind of brings all the flavors to life. I think that is this thing about flavor and blandness is, you know, having more than one dimension, ideally several dimensions in it. That's really a good point. And it got me thinking too, like, I can't just say black and white answer is 
while savory is much better than sweet or it's more multidimensional because you can mingle the two. So for example, like here's an intuitive thing that my mom made and that I know I make without even measuring. It's a cider maple vinaigrette. Okay. And that has savory and sweet and acid and all of that and oil. I mean, fat and all of that stuff. It's multidimensional and it's good, right? So there's sweet and savory in it, a little hint of sweetness. And then I guess I'm thinking too of complexity in baking. So some of the, my favorite dishes are molasses. You know, molasses is a big part of them. That and multiple spices like cloves and nutmeg and cinnamon, that all mingles together really well. So it, it does take on, you know, a multidimensional thing. Molasses for me is just, that could be the only thing I ever eat. Molasses and syrup. I love maple syrup. And, and I think that is the difference between, say, plain white sugar and molasses because plain white sugar is purified is just a pure one sucrose one glucose molecule that's what table sugar is and and molasses obviously there is a lot more stuff in there i mean molasses are really rich in minerals and molasses are obviously what is left over once you refine the sugar and molasses in themselves therefore have a much more interesting sweet taste than white sugar ever could because it's just purified. Right. And here you go getting all scientific, but you know, there is, I never realized how much of a science there is to cooking and baking and it doesn't have to be intimidating. It's kind of fascinating in a way. I mean, I'm not going to get all scientific on it and I'm not going to do too much research because I'd rather just experience it. But I do, you know, read things here and there about that. And it's kind of interesting to learn more about that. I never gave it much of a, a thought. And you obviously are pretty dialed into that, but not in a professory way. <laughs> so I like your approach to everything, Katerina. <laughs> it's just pretty chill. <laughs> yeah, it is, because I think I that's just my approach to everything. And maybe this comes from my mom too. You know, my mom was a, a working mom. She was working full time. So, so she was forever simplifying everything. You know, we still had cooked food on the table every day, but on, on weekdays, this was really simple stuff. And it was on the weekends that we did the sort of the family cooking. That was a lot of fun. And I really remember playing with flavors and stuff, but my mum was simplifying everything and I find that I can't possibly be bothered faffing around with complicated dishes. I like making sure there is a lot of flavour in everything I do because that makes it tasty. But, you know, I cook rustic food, one would say. Oh, that's a great way to, to describe it. You know, like I said, I like a challenge, but to a point. So I decided to challenge myself with bread. Because I, I used to make bread when I was in my teens and 20s all the time. But I found this recipe of my mom's that was no need bread. And it, it was, that was, I might put that as the most epic fail. It did not rise whatsoever. So I just cooked it anyway to see what would happen. It actually wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. Bread is really complicated. And I thought no need would be less complicated. But no, I, I'm done with bread and I'm done with, you know, a recipe. I used to be like, if a recipe has more than five ingredients and more than three steps, I'm not making it. Well, I've relaxed that a little bit, but you're going to draw the line somewhere. I can overthink things and I can overcomplicate things and I don't need a complicated recipe to overcomplicate <laughs> even more. <laughs> Do you have some favorite 
hacks or tips you use? A couple that, you know, might be useful for others too, as we're talking about complicating and simplifying. What's your favorite ways of simplifying something or just your favorite hacks? I'm going to go back to the herbs again. So fresh herbs, really, they just kind of enhance anything. So try to, even if you can't grow them or buy the fresh ones that are in a packet even in the store or keep a couple on your windowsill. I also think like having a stocked pantry of staples is pretty good because that will lead you to, if you're in a jam and you need to make something. So like cans of beans, garbanzo beans, black beans, whatever. And, you know, a number of dairy products in my fridge. Okay, I'm not vegan. So sorry, people close your ears. But, you know, I have milk, eggs, cheese, butter. I don't think I've used this much butter in my lifetime as I have this year baking and whatnot. And always having olive oil on hand. I think there's like, I have a list of just some pantry and larder essentials and having the basics like that, in addition to fresh herbs, spices, and the right, oh my gosh, the right pans. So I'm not all about the right utensils because everything here is like really old and the knives are kind of dull and whatever, but there's nothing that beats a cast iron frying pan for baking and sauteing. Basic things like that, I guess I just try to keep that in my wheelhouse. I don't know if that's if those are good hacks or tips, but they work for me. So I think these are brilliant tips because I think that's how I work too. I've got some basics that I just keep stocked up. And then whatever else, you know, whatever else is fresh, whatever else was forgotten in the fridge, you know, having a food shop, we forever eat the leftovers from the shop. So whatever there is, plus the pantry staples, plus some herbs and spices, and, and there you go. And this, you know, it feels like you can make a meal out of nothing. But of course, it's not nothing. It's just that you always have some some of these things there that can sit there, you know, for months and tins of beans, whatever. So we have a very similar approach. You had a recent, I think it was just yesterday, your your recent newsletter was all about the tomatoes, the roasted tomatoes, which is on my list too. So I think that's neat because you can kind of put food ahead, right? What we called putting it by, like if you canned things or made pickles or whatever, but there's always that element too, to be able to just go, oh, great, this will be perfect in a number of dishes. And and even if it's not properly canned or pickled, when it's cooked, it still keeps a lot better than when it's raw. So yeah, that was a big glut of tomatoes that were left over before we went away. So I really had to do something with it. Great. So maybe that's a good place to stop with the tips. Good. It works for me. Good, good. Well, thank you so very much for this amazing conversation from your kitchen in Maine. Yeah, thanks. You always make me think of food in a different perspective. I always get a different perspective. Reading you, hearing you. I really, I'm glad I got to know you. Well, thank you. That's really what I, I love doing, you know, making people think about food differently. So I'm glad that works for you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of At Home with the Intuitive Cook. Check out the show notes for links and tasty morsels. And remember, fresh episodes are served up every other Friday. Subscribe to stay tuned and keep exploring the joys of everyday cooking. 
Until next time, stay curious, trust your taste and don't forget, it's not rocket science, it's just dinner.